Father, in our silence, help us to hear you, your word that is life, that sustains life. Amen. Well, how was the quiet? Is it hard? Is it hard to be still and to be quiet? I don't know about you, but it is for me at times. Um, did it, just curious, and you don't have to raise your hand if you don't want to. Um, how, for how many of you were like actually able to just kind of just be quiet and not really your mind not to wander into say things you have to do after this? Anybody make it through without that? Hey, way to go, Kate. Good job. Um, like a child. That's awesome. Um, how many of you made it through without wondering about something that's maybe a little, maybe felt a little bit of anxiousness or nervousness about something going on in your life? Maybe something, yeah. Like did, uh, for those who kind of felt that way, um, did you kind of meditate on that anxiousness or did you just try to think about something else really, really quick? I'm just curious, like, cause this is how it works in my mind. I don't know how it works in yours, but when I'm quiet and still, um, usually something comes into my mind that tries to take me out of the silence, right? That kind of tries to fill the silence um, because we're not really good at being quiet, right? And so like, so a lot of times that's to-dos, like that's things that I need to get done. Um, that's things that I want to get done. That's things that could be important things like work or family or relationships. Could be things like the Cowboys game at noon, um, whatever it is. Um, you know, they could, there's something that kind of pops into to, to my mind and kind of gets me it's me thinking instead of being still. Or sometimes I'll feel a nervousness or an anxiousness. And sometimes that nervousness or anxiousness is tied to a conflict in relationship, um, something big happening in life or feels big in life, um, maybe something with work or um, with uncertainties of future or things, I, things that I've done, like things that wrongs that I've committed or what areas where I've misstepped. And usually when I feel that, like anxiousness, I try to think about something else, right? I try not to dwell on that for super long and quiet, right? And, and I don't know about you, but that's kind of my experience with, with quietness. Um, and so, so we're going to talk a little bit more about this, but we wanted to kind of start our gathering off just entering into it, just kind of stepping our feet into it, kind of getting a feel for it. And so if this seems strange for you, let me kind of back up just a half a step um, and let you know kind of why we do these things. So um, about three years ago as a faith family, um, we've always talked about faith practices and family practices and ways of following Jesus. But about three years ago, we began to put some structure around this um, and tried to answer the question together, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? And how does that answer for us, give that, that answer for us, how does that help us shape our life together? Um, and so I'm going to assume, because I don't know everybody, but I'm going to assume that you're in this space because at minimum you're after something from God, something from Jesus, that maybe you've had an encounter with Jesus, maybe you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, um, um, if you grew up in the church, or you've had this experience with God in some way, and you either want or desire more of Him, and you want to live in a way that is congruent with what He says is a good life, or you're searching for that in some way. You're not really 100% sure where and who God is and how life with God looks, but you're curious about that. You long for that. You think that's something of importance to you. You wouldn't give up a Sunday morning and be in a space like this if that wasn't somehow in your, in your universe, right? And it may nuance a little bit differently, but like you're all after something, right? And for, for those who, um, who have kind of maybe grown up in this space or for those in our faith family, we talk about this drawing to God as an invitation from Jesus to follow him. 
Like we think that's what actually Jesus' invitation is, is that he hits on that thing that draws us to God, to life in God, to a life that, that walks in congruence with who God is and how he says things should be, um, because Jesus is actually asking us to follow him. And that to be um, um, a follower of Jesus is first and foremost to be someone who's responded to that invitation, who have heard, has heard Jesus say, come and follow me in some sort of way, in some sort of experience. That call that, um, um, that for the last couple of months we looked at in Second Peter's letter, um, that we received by the power and promise of Jesus, to the life of Jesus, to Jesus' own glory and excellence, that we have in some way received an invitation to, um, and um, an invitation from Jesus given in delight, chosen by Jesus to find our lives in his life. That's what we believe a follower of Jesus is, someone who's responded to that, responded to that life of Jesus as their own life. And as a response to that, we are ones who are continuously in his presence so that we might inherit his character and imitate his actions. That's what it means to be an apprentice. I mean, we talk about apprenticeship and you probably think, you know, um, um, in some ways, like what apprenticeship of old was, like maybe an apprentice to a cobbler or to a blacksmith, but somebody who has, who has taken another person under their wings to help them develop the character, competency, skills in order to do the thing that that person does, right? That's what it means to follow Jesus. He's taken us under his wings. He's invited us into his life and life with him. So we might develop the competencies, the character, the skills to be able to live the life that he says is ours through him, in him. As apprentices, then, we orient our lives around three goals. We orient our lives um, and order our lives around Jesus using, utilizing three goals. As a faith family, we talk a lot about this, that we want to be with Jesus, that we want to do things that help us be with the one to whom we're apprenticed to, our master who's showing us how life really works, helping to develop the skills for life, right? We want to be with him. An apprentice can't learn, uh, can't learn by reading a book. The apprentice learns by life with the one they are apprenticing from. We want to orient and order, order our daily lives and communal lives around habits like silence and solitude, Sabbathing and fasting that help us be continuously aware and responsive to Jesus through the Holy Spirit. That's what these habits do. To be consciously and continuously aware and responsive to Jesus through the Holy Spirit. But we don't just want to be aware of Jesus, be with Jesus. We actually want to become like Jesus. We want to be transformed by Jesus. And so we orient our, and order our daily and communal lives around those practices like the prayer of examine. Uh, Lectio Divina, together, the Together exercise that we walk through in May that help us become like Jesus in character and disposition in a manner of how we relate to the Father, how we relate to one another, our neighbors, ourselves, and our world. We want to become like Jesus' his character, his disposition, and how he relates to the world around him. And we also want to do what Jesus did. We want to be ones whose behaviors, um, things like keeping to the basic rule, lamenting, embodying the kingdom at every meal that we looked at in August. These behaviors of ours imitate the desires that are expressed in the attitudes and actions of our master. That, that we imitate the desires, we have to share the desires of Jesus and imitate his attitudes and actions in the world. That we live for him, participating in the work that he is doing in each other's lives, in the lives of our neighbor and our city. And, and so as a faith family, for again, for a couple, like almost three years now, we've kind of oriented our own collective life, our communal life together around 
um, a season where we go into the scriptures and we look at the words of God through the scriptures because that's how we get to know God. That's where we stay grounded in, just like we've done in Second Peter um, over the last couple months. And then we step out of that into um, a practice within one of these goals, helping us practically be apprentices, not just in theory, but in the thing that we're actually doing. And so everything that we do today and for the rest of this month is meant to not stay here but to be repeated out of here is meant to help us enter into it. This is like, this is the time where we're getting to practice the things, the skills, the practices, the habits that help us be apprentices Monday through Saturday. This isn't meant to be the the time, just the time that we do it, but the time that allows us to kind of enter into it and kind of figure it out together. Right. And so um, uh, we have this thing both on our website and the app that has this little tag following Jesus. And I think we've got a slide for it. Maybe, maybe, maybe. There it is. Uh, following Jesus. So when we're walking through life and we wonder, hey, what am I supposed to be doing? Like, what am I supposed to be doing in this life of faith, in this life after Jesus? Well, go to following Jesus, uh, Christ.live backslash following Jesus or open the app. And on there is a, a little a list of be with Jesus. And here are the ways that we be with Jesus, practices and habits we can do. Become like Jesus. Here are the habits and practices we can do. Do what Jesus did. Here are the habits and practices we can do. And as simple as it sounds, like we kind of need that. At least we think we do as a faith family. We need to have some of these structures that help us do the thing that we actually want to do, which is live a life like Jesus, that honors Jesus, that glorifies Jesus. And listen, being a disciple and apprentice isn't overly complicated. Like you may sound like, oh man, we just named like all these, these practices, these spiritual disciplines of sort or whatever. Like that seems like a lot. But Dallas Wheeler reminds us that being a disciple is nothing to be afraid of. It's nothing to, it's not a puzzle to figure out because there's really no mystery about desiring and, and intent, um, intending to be like someone. We all have that, right? There's not a lot of mystery about having somebody who you aspire to be like and trying to live your life in a way that meets that aspiration. That's pretty common. And if we really do intend to be like Jesus, that that will be obvious to every one every thoughtful person around us as well as ourselves like we'll know that that's really our desire that's really our intention and we'll figure out how to do that with other people but here's the deal Uh, our attitudes that define the disciple cannot be realized today by leaving family and business to accompany jesus on the travels about the countryside because if we're honest we think about a disciple of jesus we think about those who walk closely with them we think following jesus like side by side it's like listen we, we don't get to walk the roads of judea anymore like so how do we do that how do we do that? Well, we do that through, the, through orienting our lives around Jesus through the goals of apprenticeship. And that discipleship can be made concrete, not theoretical, by actively learning how to love our enemies. But this is what discipleship produces, right? That discipleship really is us just learning how to love our enemies, to bless those who curse us, to walk the second mile with an oppressor. In general, living out the gracious inward transformation of faith, hope, and love. That's what it means to be a disciple. That the the gracious inward transformation of faith, hope, and love becomes something that's outside of us, something that's seen, something that's known, something that's experienced. Living out that gracious inward transformation that we have obtained, received by the divine gift through the righteousness of Jesus, his person, his power, his promise. In the words of 2 Peter that we looked at all last month, we are ones who supplement our faith. 
We are ones who experience in vivid fullness the good news of God with us and God for us. And that is the aim of our life as Jesus' slaves and apostles, owned and honored, purchased and freed. And it is what we as a faith family have made the framework of our life together. So that's what we're doing right now. Um, today, we're stepping out of kind of our times of just going in through the scriptures and trying to feed on the scriptures and live out the scriptures into, okay, so practically, let's ask the question, how do we be with Jesus? What does that look like to be with Jesus? And so I know we have some, some people newer to our faith family who haven't been here the, the, um, um, super long. So let me just briefly kind of tell you what it, when we talk about being with Jesus, what that means. Being with Jesus simply means individually and in community, utilizing habits that help us live in a constant state of connection to the spirit. That we recognize his presence, his leading and his voice in the routines and relationships of ordinary life. We're attentive, we're aware and responsive to Jesus through the spirit, the spirit's presence, Jesus' presence, the spirit's leading, Jesus' leading, the spirit's voice, Jesus' voice in our everyday roles and relationships. And we, we have, as a faith family said, for us in this moment in time in history where we find ourselves, the specific habits of silence and solitude, Sabbathing and fasting are the ones most helpful for us. There's more. You can go find a whole list of, of more disciplines and all that kind of stuff. But we've said over the years that these are the ones for where we're at in our time and place that we're going to focus on communally and collectively because these are the ones that help us remain aware and responsive to the one who said, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Always he's with us. And these habits, silence and solitude, Sabbathing and fasting, help us live in the awareness of that reality, attuned to that reality, responsive to Jesus with us, God with us. The habits of being with Jesus primarily take the form of scheduled or planned times. You don't stumble into spaces of quiet. Very rarely, right? You don't accidentally find your heart quieted, your mind quieted. You don't stumble into days of rest or sacred moments of abstaining. We must enter into them. These habits are always intentional times, purposed that we might remember and recognize that we are continuously in the presence of Jesus, who is life and who goes before us as the way of life, leading us to what is truth, our life in God, our life only and holy in God. These habits in particular are exercises in doing nothing so that we might receive everything. Think about it. Silence and solitude, Sabbathing, fasting. These are all habits of doing nothing in order that we might receive everything. Everything we need for life and godliness, as Peter put it, as we abide in Jesus and Jesus in us, abide in his words and his words in us. This mutual abiding is how Jesus describes life shared with him post the cross. He said in his final night before to sacrifice these words in John chapter 15, already you are clean, already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you, because of my words, because of what I've said to you, because of what, who I am and because of who I am, the way I can speak and what I speak in its authority, you are already clean. You're already clean because of me, because of what I have done. So abide in me. Rest in me, take residence in me, live in me, and I'll live in you. I'll abide in you, take residence in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. If you want life to produce life and not just decay, then it comes from living in me and me and you. I've already made you clean. I've already made it possible 
for me to enter into you. I've already made it possible for you to enter into me, into the space, the sacred space of divine and, and human together. I've already done it. So come and live in it. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, that same word that I spoke to you to clean you, that same word that I spoke, that spoke to you to show you life, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit, that you live a life of fullness, a life that produces life, and so prove to be what? My disciples, my apprentices, the ones who follow me. How do we abide in Jesus and his words abide in us? Just before this, um, just a few verses before this, Jesus says, well, you do it because the Holy Spirit is the one who comes and shows you how. And you Listen to what Jesus said just before his famous vine and branch description. He said in John 14, and I will ask the Father in another, literally in the, in the Greek, it's another like me. Not just another random another, but another like me. Another like Jesus, the helper, the advocate, the one who's for you, who speaks on your behalf, who advocates for your life and life to the fullest. I will, I will ask the Father in another like me, another advocate like me will um, will come. He will give you that he may be with you throughout the age. Didn't Jesus say he was going to be with us throughout the age, to the end of the age? And the Holy Spirit is going to come to be with us throughout the age, the end of the age. The Spirit of truth. You know him for you, for with you he abides, and in you he will be. But I thought Jesus just said he abides in us, and that we are in him. Well, Jesus says, another like me, the one who, whom I send, who I ask the Father to send through me, another advocate comes and abides in you, and that's the Holy Spirit. These things I have spoken to you with you abiding. John 14, 25. Jesus says to the disciples, these things I've spoken to you while we've been walking together in real life, flesh and flesh, side by side. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, in my essence, in my character, my being, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you, all the words that I have said to you, all the things that make you clean, the ways to live. So to be with Jesus is to live in a constant state of connection to the Spirit, our advocate who walks with us and leads us on the way of Jesus. That's how Paul describes the free life of Jesus, the fruit of life in Jesus that we reap by sowing to the Spirit. He says in Galatians 5, walk by the Spirit. Be led by the Spirit. Live by the Spirit. Paul assumes that free life in Jesus, for freedom Christ has come to set us free, that's Galatians 5, 1. The rest of Galatians 5 is Paul walking out what it looks like to be free in the Spirit, to be free in Jesus. It's to be one who finds themselves walking in the Spirit, being led by the Spirit, bearing the fruit of the Spirit, so that they actually live the life of Jesus in the spirit. And so our habits of being with Jesus are meant to help us abide in Jesus and Jesus in us through the spirit, recognizing his presence, his leading and his voice in the routines and relationships of ordinary life. And listen, if, if hearing the spirit of the Lord, hearing the voice of the Lord is something new to you, difficult for you, like we've, we've talked about this a lot as a faith family. And in the following Jesus um, 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 uh, app and all that fun stuff, like we have whole exercises that we've gone through 
Um, there's resources that, we can, that you can access. And I don't just tell you that to, hey, hey, go, go figure it out. I'm saying, no, go, go jump into it and then let's talk. Let's have coffee. Come into gospel community. Let's work it out. Let's help each other. That's a part of what our continued practices are. Not to be done one time in a setting like this and focused on one month out of a rhythm as we go through, but picked up over and over and over and over and over again until this becomes normative for us. Right? But the habits of stopping, stopping so that in body, mind, and heart, we might be quiet enough that our souls, who we really and truly are in and with and for Jesus, might be strengthened and transformed through the presence of the word. That's what these habits are. Habits that stop us. To be with Jesus is to practice habits that stop us so that the body, mind, and heart might be quiet enough. That our souls, who we really are, who we've really been made to be in God's image, who God says we are, might be strengthened and transformed by the presence of the word through the spirit. Okay, so that's what be with Jesus is. So what about silence and solitude? Again, this isn't, for those in our faith family, we've talked about this before, um, but let me again quickly kind of say what it is, what we think it is before we jump into it. Silence and solitude is simply this. It's a habit of being quiet and alone to be with God. Being quiet and alone to be with God. To be quiet, silencing the noise of our bodies and their activities. Silencing our minds and our thoughts that wonder, kind of reining them in a little bit. And silencing our hearts and emotions so that we might be alone. And alone there is this idea of being attuned primarily to God with us, to his presence being that which consumes our attention. That, that we're never alone. And we don't have to practice solitude alone in isolation. We'll talk about that in a second. But but like we're never alone, we're in the presence of God. So we be quiet and we're alone so that we might be with God. Not, so it's not a distraction to emptiness. We're not trying to empty our minds and clear our minds, empty our hearts and clear our hearts, empty um, uh, our doing and clear our doing just to be in the emptiness in the space, to float in a tranquility of, of nothingness, right? That's not what we're after. We're, we're not trying to enter into a vegetated state to get away from life, to escape life, but rather we're reconnecting to the source of life, to the one whose voice and words give life and make life possible, life now and life forever. That's what we're doing in being quiet and being alone, is that we're being quiet and alone with God to reconnect to the source of all life, whose very words speak life. So here's what it's not. Being quiet and alone, again, requires actual silence and solitude, but it's not always literal. So it's not always literally that you have to be completely silent or completely alone. Henry Nouwen um, points out that Dan actually sent me this quote earlier this week, and I thought it was really helpful. He's quoting a desert father when he says this. He says, silence of the heart is much more important than silence of the mouth. A man may seem to be silent, but if his heart is condemning others, he is babbling ceaselessly. All right, so if in our quiet, we're not saying anything, but our heart is churning a mile an hour, 100 miles an hour out of anger or frustration or bitterness or whatever, then we're not quiet. We're not silent. It's, it, our heart isn't quiet. It's one thing to be quiet, literally. It's a different thing to be quiet, like our hearts to be quieted. But there may be another who talks from morning till night, and yet he is truly silent. There may be those who seem to talk all the time, but they talk out of a place of silence and rest. So it doesn't have to be completely literal. 
So hopefully that will free some of us up who hate quiet <laughs> to be like, hey, the goal isn't just no noise. The goal is a heart that's quieted. And usually though, let's be honest, it takes quieting the other things around us to get there, right? Okay. But silence helps us quiet our being because we are resting in the provision of Jesus' life and words. Similarly, solitude does not always have to be practiced in isolation. It's not moving away from people primarily. Solitude is not an excuse to get away from your family, right? It's not an excuse to escape your job and your responsibilities and all those kind of things. But it is moving into a space where your primary attention can be fixed on God with you and God for you where you're removed from the things that would distract you from seeing and recognizing, being aware of the reality of what the psalmist says, that the Lord of hosts is for us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. That God is with us and God is for us. That he will be exalted and he will be honored if we just stop doing, if we just stop and quiet ourselves a little bit. So it's not always literal. It's not always in isolation but it is something that we have to intentionally enter into, right? And so where do we get this idea? We didn't, did we just make this up? Is this just something that, that people have, have made up over the years? No, it's actually a habit that comes from Jesus. Jesus' ministry began in Luke's, Luke's gospel um, this way. Um, um, after Jesus has grown, he's, he's walking into ministry, he says, and when it was day, Jesus departed and went into a desolate or solitary place. Beginning in Jesus' ministry started in a, de a desolate and solitary place, a place of silence and solitude. Jesus began his ministry there. And we're like, okay, that's great. We know that that's awesome. It's a good way to, to begin something, a big task of ministry. But, but in Luke's gospel, um, he also says this, just one chapter later. While Jesus was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. You can, you can draw me back in the community. You can make me whole and purposeful. Leprosy was a disease that cast people out of their society. They, weren't, they had no identity other than their disease. They had no role within the community other than their disease. They could not be around because they made people both physically and, and um, sacrimoniously unpure, unclean. So they were disconnected from everything that they could be as individuals and in community. And so this man's longing is longing to be who he really is meant to be. But this disease has kept him from being that. Who he's meant to be as a part of his family, as an individual within the community. He can't be any of that. All he can be is his disease. And so he's asking Jesus to clean him of his disease, to, to heal him of those things so that he can be whole again. And what does Jesus do? Jesus stretched out his hand and touched the man saying, I will so you be clean. You, what you ask, I'll do. I'll make you clean. Same prayer that Jesus had said, right? My words have made you clean, made you whole um, in John's gospel. And immediately, immediately the leprosy left him. Now the report about Jesus went abroad and great crowds gathered around to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. Why not? Jesus makes us clean. We go to him. We, why not run to him? But listen to these words of verse 16. But Jesus would withdraw, would withdraw, regularly withdrew to desolate places in prayer. Jesus in the midst of his ministry, at the peak of doing the thing that God has made him to do, regularly stopped doing in order to be quiet and still before the Lord, before his father. In the midst of the peak of his ministry, where he was doing the very thing he was sent to do, he stops. 
that's counterintuitive to all the things that we do, right? When, when things are going great and well, when we feel like we're churning along and doing everything that we're supposed to do and being everything we're meant to be, we just keep going. And Jesus does the opposite. He stops. He withdraws. He settles himself, quiets his heart, his body, his mind, so that the words of his father, which are life to him, which are the very things that he speaks, might ground him and settle him so that he can be and do the things that he has been called to do. Over nine times in Luke's gospel, Jesus withdraws into quiet places, into stillness. This habit is not just something that we've invented. It's not something that came out of the Middle Ages in the, in the mystic movements. It's not something that's just on a list of spiritual disciplines um, that somebody made up randomly. It is an imitation of the life of Jesus. And that's why we practice it. And that's why we do it. So why is it important that we do it? Because as a faith family, we started with silence and solitude. We said when we were going to kind of frame our lives around this, these practices, that this is the practice that we want to start with. Well, Dallas Willard helps us there too. He says this, solitude and silence are the most radical of the spiritual disciplines because they most directly attack the sources of human misery and wrongdoing. And in my words, which is us trying to be God rather than being God's. It's us trying to be God himself rather than us being possessed by God, being God's own possession. Silence and solitude attack directly the sources of human misery and wrongdoing, which is us trying to play God, trying to be God, trying to take responsibility that's not ours to take, rather than being ones who are owned by God, loved by God, freed by God, raised by God. Willard goes on to describe why this habit is so radically says, to be in solitude is to choose to do nothing. All accomplishment is given up. Again, Jesus, in the midst of his ministry, where everything in us would say, keep going, keep doing more and more and more and more. Look, the crowds are coming to you. You've, you've arrived. He steps away. There's nothing. There's no accomplishment. There's, there's nothing that he can say about what he's doing that somehow measures himself. He stops doing and listen, silence is required to complete solitude for until we enter quietness, the world still lays hold of us, Willard says. That we can stop doing in solitude. We can, we can remove ourselves to a place where we can be completely present to the Lord and stop trying all these things. But until we're silent, like the world still kind of grabs hold of us. Our heart still churns a mile a minute. Our heads still go to all the distractions that are around us and in us and, and all that kind of stuff. And, and so... Where, when we go into silence and solitude, says Willard, we stop making demands of God. When we go into silence and solitude, we stop making demands of God. It's enough that God is God and we are his. And listen, we'd probably all say yes and amen to that, right? But like, we have a hard time living that. Like we can say it, we can believe it, but do we experience it? Do we act on it? Are we really okay that God is God and we are his? Is it really enough that God is God and we are his? Do we, be, do we not just believe it, but do we get to live out of it, experience it, the fruit of it in our lives? We learn we have a soul. That's what silence and solitude teaches us, that we have a soul, that we are more than our actions. We are more than our affiliations. We are more than our sins. We are more than our accomplishments. 
We have a soul created, loved, delighted in. And this soul lives in a world that is our father's world. Our father's world. Not just a, a being's world, not just a world with, um, with, without some sort of movement in history, not a world that's just designed to take and to take and to take, or is a world designed where you think you can take over and take over and take over. A world that is crafted and created by a father, who, as we saw in 2 Peter, is patiently calling his children back into him so that he can make the world in a way which all the, the dissonance that we experience might be removed and we can live whole and full forever. While our culture inside and outside of our own faith, sometimes the culture of the church and sometimes and definitely culture outside of it, encourages, even cultivates us to seize every moment. The habit of being quiet and alone with God is the discipline of submitting every moment. While the world tells us, seize it. Don't miss out. Be a part of everything, anything. What you want, you do. You go, 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 go. Grab more, 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 more. The habit of quiet, being quiet and alone with God is the discipline of submitting every moment. And in submission, we are releasing everything that we think, feel, or do to our Father who gives us everything. And in submitting every moment, we are being saved from control and confusion and anxiety and even ambition. In submitting, we are saved from control and confusion, anxiety and ambition. We're being saved from those things. And in submitting to the one who gives of himself, who gave himself in body and blood, we are able to walk freely in our identity and our calling in our own skin, to be ones who are beloved children, who are delight to their father, who has formed and fashioned us for his glory and excellence. But perhaps this is where the difficulty with the habit lies in our penchant for distraction and our disdain for submission. Because let's be honest, silence and solitude is not easy. That's the reason we're talking about it again. It's not something that while we, again, can say yes and amen to what it is, and what maybe it can produce um, um, in submission to the Lord and in receiving of his grace, um, it's just not, it's not easy. We like and are accustomed to noise and distraction. I mean, we all are. We have to admit it, right? We cannot even in 60 seconds not be distracted, not want noise and long for noise, much less three minutes, 10 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, a whole day, multiple days. Now, that seems impossible for us, right? Our hearts are divided, aren't they? Don't we long for a way with God that's full, but also long for the way of the world? Don't, don't we want what manna offers, the things that the world offers? And we think we can go after that, and we, but we can also go after what God wants, and we can serve both, but we end up serving none. Find ourselves enslaved to one. <laughs> and hating the other. We don't want to be quiet and alone. We really do like to seize and to not submit. But at the core, and this is what I believe to be true, is that we struggle most with this habit, not just because we're accustomed to and we desire not to be quiet, 
But we struggle with this habit because being quiet and alone with God can feel uncomfortable and frightening. Being alone and quiet with God can feel uncomfortable and frightening. In silence and solitude, we're vulnerable. And that is uncomfortable and disorienting. It's like the encounter that Isaiah has in Isaiah chapter 6. He encounters God alone in the presence of God. He has to face himself. And listen to what Isaiah, how, what happens in Isaiah's story. Isaiah chapter 6 says this. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. I mean, pretty amazing experience, right? Like something, to some extent, we kind of all long for, even if we're a little intimidated by it. Like to be able to see the Lord in, in the presence of the Lord is something I think we'd all desire to some degree. In that overwhelming presence, because God is pictured in this overwhelming way, right? He's on top of his throne. His train literally covers the entire temple, like his robe just engulfs the whole thing. The whole idea is that this is just an overwhelming experience. And not only is it overwhelming visually, but Isaiah goes on, he says, and the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. Like, not only was it visually overwhelming, but the voice of the Lord, the words that were supposed to bring life, like shook the foundations of things, filled the air, were visible and dense. I mean, that's pretty, pretty incredible and pretty amazing, right? Like the words of the Lord, shaking, moving things, visible, seen in their smoke and their density. And so, how does Isaiah respond to such an overwhelming experience, such a vulnerable experience? He says this, woe is me for I am lost. How would you respond in the presence of the Lord, in the temple of the Lord, if you saw what Isaiah saw? Would you, do you think you'd be like, yes, praise the Lord, we're here, I get to see him. Or would you be so overwhelmed in the presence of the Lord that you are like Isaiah, you're a little afraid and disoriented. Woe is me for I am lost. I don't know where I'm at. Why am I here? How did I get here? Do I deserve to be here? Is this really where I want to be? For he goes on, so he says, for I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King and the Lord of hosts, the same Lord of hosts is for us in Psalm 46. In the presence of the Lord, Isaiah saw himself. He saw himself as lost. He saw himself as unclean, unworthy, out of place in such a place. How many of us have experienced that in our quiet time with the Lord? When we felt the presence of the Lord in such a way that came at us that we felt disoriented and lost, unclean and unworthy. I mean, holiness has that effect, right? God's the massiveness of God's overwhelming beingness has that effect. But then listen to this. In that place of feeling disoriented and lost, feeling exposed, and maybe for the first time in Isaiah's life, if you, if you read the history of Isaiah and what the, some of the historians say, like up until this point, Isaiah was probably a fairly arrogant person. Like he was gifted, called prophetic, all those kind of things, but he kind of lavished it and liked it a lot and like was really kind of like pretty, pretty arrogant about the way he carried himself and the words that he spoke and the way that he spoke and the power that he was in. He kind of felt like he was a person who had arrived, right? 
And then here in the presence of the Lord, maybe for the first time in his life, he's able to admit that he's not really there. I'm a man of unclean lips amongst the people of unclean lips. I'm not leading a whole group of God's people into establishing his kingdom. I am one who speaks things that are maybe half truth, who speaks things that I know are true, but I don't really believe, who says things who, and don't, doesn't live out of those things. And guess what? I'm leading people to do the exact same thing. For the first time, you can admit that before the Lord. Maybe for the first time, he sees that in himself before the Lord. And listen, and listen what happens next, though. But then one of the seraphim flew to me, flew to Isaiah, having in hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Did Isaiah do anything to atone for his sin? Does he do anything to make himself clean and pure? To allow himself to stay in the presence where he didn't feel he deserved to be? Or did the words make him clean? The very sin, deficiency, which Isaiah recognized in the presence of God, his unclean lips. That's exactly what is touched, atoned for by the fire. Circa Peter 3. Remember what we talked about in Peter, Second Peter 3? That's exactly what is atoned for by the fire from God's own altar. Not from Isaiah's altar from God's own altar. The exact thing, the thing that, that makes Isaiah feel unworthy to be in the presence of God, God covers. He removes. He atones for. How amazing is that? That in the presence of God, which is overwhelming, Isaiah is exposed. Isaiah is vulnerable. Maybe for the first time he sees himself as he really is. And I would think that's why he says, woe is me. I'm in, I'm in trouble. Like there's nothing hidden. I can't get away with it. There's, there's nowhere to hide. Like God sees me now and I'm going to be in trouble. But instead of being in trouble, his sins are atoned for, his deficiencies are atoned for. Not generally, but specifically. Um, specifically. And then if you know the story, right after this, this is when Isaiah receives his call, where God says, who will go for me? Who will speak for us? And Isaiah, full of vigor and energy now, atoned for, clean in the presence of the Lord, stands up to walk into the calling that he was made for. To do the very thing that he was fashioned and formed to do. Part of the reason silence and solitude, being quiet and alone with God are not easy is that we are conditioned for distraction. But also, it's also difficult because when everything is quiet and I'm aware of God's presence, I'm also actually aware of myself. And that can be an uncomfortable, intimidating, and even scary thing. Right? If we're honest. As we go through silence and solitude again a second time, this is kind of where we're going to hit on over the next few weeks. Helping us kind of walk into this understanding that silence and solitude kind of reveals a knowledge um, of not just who God is, but of ourselves. Not just a knowledge of our master and savior, Jesus, that we're encouraged to grow in. It does that, right? Not just a knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, through which we have all things that pertain to life and godliness, which Peter passionately proclaimed to us in his second letter. Not such a knowledge of God and, our, and, and Jesus, our master, 
that leads to grace and peace and abundance. But a knowledge like Isaiah's of God and Jesus, it is more than belief and information that we affirm, but knowledge that we experience as we get to know ourselves in the presence of the Lord. Uh, a knowing that is relational, that has to be relational, right? I think mean, that's the point of Isaiah's story is that, that to know God as Isaiah was able to know God and to be able to speak the things of God that Isaiah was gonna be able to speak, he had to know God and not know God in, in theory and belief, but in relationship and experience together. The faith that transforms has to grow out of an interaction with the object that is known, with the person that is known. And such knowing experienced, knowing that affirms the truth of who God really is, requires that we be open to receiving his presence, his love, his call. That we expose ourselves to him, knowing that what we see, he loves, he transforms, he makes pure, he atones for so that we might live fully and wholly into who we are. And listen, the interdependence of knowing God and knowing ourselves has been attested throughout our faith family history. This isn't some sort of like psychological babble of like trying to get to know yourself. Um, that life is about knowing yourself and living full for yourself. Like this is actually what our scriptures say is most true. And listen, it's been attested from Augustine, who, whose prayer was this, grant Lord that I may know myself, that I may know you, that I may know thee. Augustine prayed this prayer. This was his prayer. Lord, I, I wanna know you, so help, help me know myself so that I can know you. So that I can know who you really are, what you're really like. Not just in what I believe, but what I experience with you. All the way to Calvin, who argued that nearly the whole of sacred, sacred doctrine consists in these two parts, knowledge of God and of ourselves. That's how Calvin begins his institutes his tome on, on all the doctrines and theologies of life. It begins with knowing God and knowing ourselves. And it rests on that. So the habit of knowing God and knowing ourselves through being quiet and alone with Jesus has been a primary practice throughout our faith's history. For as Thomas Kempis claimed, a humble self-knowledge is a sure way to God than a search after deep learning. A humble self-knowledge is, sure is a sure way to God than a search after deep learning. For it assumes that we do not just come to know about God, but we get to know him as he really is in his presence. It transforms like Isaiah. So as we enter back into it, what we're gonna do somewhat briefly today I know we, I talked a lot more than will be the rest of our time. Each week as we go forward, we're going to orient and guide our time around actually just practicing silence and solitude. Now we've kind of got a framework for what it is, how we're going to look at it this time. But before we do that, I want to just, I just want to state something that I think needs to be stated. Um, acknowledge a reality that at the front end that um, as we reenter this season that needs to, to, to be acknowledged so that we can walk and talk freely about these things. Ruth Haley Barton explains um, this reality in this way. She says, this willingness to see ourselves as we are and to name it in God's presence like Isaiah did. To see ourselves as we are and name it in God's presence like Isaiah did is at the very heart of our spiritual journey, of our pilgrimage and apprenticeship to Jesus. We, like, like Augustine and Calvin and Kempis, Thomas Akempis, like, like we need to be able to see ourselves truly as we are in the presence of God. We get to know ourselves truly as we are in the presence of God. 
Like I said, vital to our, um, to our spiritual journey, our apprenticeship. But it takes time. Listen to this. It takes time to feel safe enough with ourselves and with God to risk exposing the tender, unfinished places of the soul. It takes time. This, this is why it's a habit that we come back to over and over again. It takes time for us to feel safe enough with ourselves. And for a lot of us, like there's, there's gonna be these two pools. We're, gonna, we're not gonna feel safe with ourselves. We're gonna, we're gonna feel like um, if we really get to know ourselves, we're not gonna like ourselves. Like if we really get to see ourselves as God sees us, we're not gonna like what we find. And, and we're not gonna even know how to fix it. We're not gonna know what to do with it. And so we don't really wanna get to know ourselves. But it takes time. Like, listen, like, it takes time to be comfortable in who God's made you to be. Like, it's, it's normal. It's, it's called growing up. It's what Peter assumes would be our entire lives, of growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. That it takes time for us to grow into ourselves, being comfortable enough with ourselves. We've all been through adolescence, right? Most of us in here. Not all of us. Some of us are, are not quite there yet, um, but soon. Um, um, but as we remember in adolescence, there was that just kind of awkward phase where you're just uncomfortable with yourself. You weren't really sure who you were yet. You weren't really, you weren't really aware of like what, how things worked in life. And there's a part of that that's, that's true even today. If we can admit that at some level, we've kind of got to go through that spiritually in our relationship with the Lord, that'll be helpful. But it takes time. But it also takes time for us to be safe enough with God. Because the ideas that we have of God aren't always the reality of who God is. It's why we need the Isaiah 6 experiences. Why we need silence and solitude. So that we can, what we think about God can match up with actually how we experience God. What we believe about God and what we see in his scriptures can actually match the way we encounter God in our lives and can recognize where those things are off. Listen, we are accustomed to being shamed or condemned in the unfinished parts of ourselves. That it is hard to believe that there's a place or a person where all of who we are, the good, the bad, and the ugly, will be handled with love and gentleness. Listen, it's hard to believe that, right? I mean, think about it in our day and age. Like, we're, we're used to, accustomed to being shamed or condemned by the unfinished parts of ourselves. It's why we edit our photos. It's why we, we only present a certain vision of ourselves to others. And listen, that, that shame extends into our relationship with the Lord, right? Like we're, we're ashamed of what we might, might, be, might be exposed if God really knew us, completely knew us. And we're ashamed. And so in that shame, we feel like that we can't expose the good, bad, and the ugly. That There's not really a place where, there'd be, where we could or a person who could, we could be truly fully ourselves to. They would handle us with love and gentleness. But solitude and silence is a, such a place. And Jesus is such a person for that. But it takes time to learn to trust him and the habit. So let me say that at the beginning. It will take time for us to learn to trust Jesus in the habit of silence and solitude. But stay with it. Stay at it. Abide. And let the fruit come. Remember Peter, um, who was an apprentice of Jesus, who abided with Jesus literally um, for at least three years. Um, 
the way he talks about the expectation of us growing up into all that we've been given in Jesus is this kind of long obedience, right? Is this kind of journey in which we learn to trust Jesus and the habits that Jesus gives us to become fully who Jesus says that we are. But, you know, sometimes we think about this spiritual journey in a way that feels like it's like, well, if I can get from A to B, then I can go on to C and D. That's not really how it works. Like, journey is true. Like, the spiritual life is a journey. Uh, we talk about that a lot as a faith family. We're on a journey together as pilgrims together to our Father as spiritual companions, right? Like, and it's true because we're on our way to something. But here's the reality of what our scriptures give us. That we're already what we seek and we're already where we long to arrive. That's what Peter says at the end of his, his gospels, right? Or at the end of his letter, right? They were already there. Not fully and completely, but we're already there. We're already who we seek to be and where we long to arrive. And once we realize this, the nature of the journey reveals itself to be more one of an awakening than an accomplishment. More one of a spiritual aware, awareness than a spiritual achievement, as David Brenner says. That's important because this is not about achievement. This is not about accomplishment. Silence and solitude is the very opposite of that. It's an awareness, an awakening to the reality of who you are and whose you are. Listen, I think Peter gained this knowledge from Jesus um, in a multitude of ways, but probably most significantly in Matthew's gospel. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 11, and we're going to enter into a few minutes of quiet together. Matthew chapter 11, um, Jesus comes and he rebukes the deafness and blindness of those who don't want to know themselves truly and only wanted to know God in a way that fits their temperament. And he, he says, like, this is not going to get you anywhere. It's only going to get you destruction. This doesn't lead to life. It leads to the opposite of life. But then Jesus says, offers this really, truly revelatory declaration and then a most gracious invitation. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 25 says this. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, God. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. I'm glad that you've kept the way that you work, what you're after in life, what you want in life, hidden from the manipulation of humanity, from the wise and understanding who could, who could set their own agendas and revealed them to children who are happy to live in whatever their parents give them in the freedom that they're given as children just to be. Yes, Father, for so it pleased you well that this should be the way it worked. And listen to this. He says, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Father. The same kind of knowledge we're talking about, knowledge of God. Knows the Son except the Father. So this, the, the Father's given him. No one knows the, the Son except the Father. The Father knows the Son, who he really is, how he really is, what he's really meant to be. And no one except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. That if we want to know the God who knows us, that we know him through Jesus. And how, what does Jesus say then? And this is profound. He says, come to me. Come to me. Here's his invitation again. Come to me, my apprentices. You who labor and are heavy laden. You who go through life weary from trying to live it. You who are burdened by your sin, by your doubt, by your confusion, by your ambition. You who want something from God so badly that you'll do anything to get it, but don't seem to be. Come, you who labor and are heavy laden, 
and I will give you rest. I will give you rest. I will take your anxieties and your fears. I will let you be in a place of peace besides still waters. Take my yoke upon you. Take what I've been made for. The, 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 the yoke, the strap that's, that's on my back that's meant to carry, to be carried, to do the work that I'm meant to do. Take that. Because what is that? It's just the Father's desire for me. It's who the Father says I am. It's what the Father says I'm made for. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Learn from me. Learn that this is the way that I live. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. I'm not angry with you for working really hard and failing. I'm not angry with you for stumbling, for not believing. I'm not angry with you for those things. I'm not angry at your doubt or your confusion or your ambitions. Like I'm really, actually really gentle and lowly. It's a safe place to be exposed. I'm a safe one to be exposed to. And when you're exposed, you will find rest for your souls. You'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Literally in the, in the Greek translation, my yoke is perfect, fit for you. It's perfect, it's fit for you. There's no resistance to it. It creates no resistance in this life that you have. There's no drag on it. My yoke does that for you. This morning, let's be quiet and alone. Learn to trust ourselves with Jesus and the habits that Jesus gives us. So I want you to settle into a comfortable position. And listen, a part of learning to be quiet together is um, practicing a really simple exercise. It's just called a centering prayer. So listen, over the next few moments, we're gonna get to be quiet. And just be still, like we did a minute ago, 60 seconds, but we're gonna extend it out to just two minutes, right? A little bit longer. But this time when your mind wanders, which it will, when it's filled with distractions and it will come, instead of just kind of going nowhere, going anywhere, all we have to do is simply do this. Breathe in, God is God. Breathe out, I am his. Every time your mind wanders, breathe in, God is God, breathe out, I'm his. And then find yourself back in that spot of a heart being quieted, mind being quieted as your body's quieted. So let's do this. I know it may be awkward, but just close your eyes. And let's just pray that prayer together. You can pray with me. Breathe in, God is God. Breathe out, I am his. Breathe in. God is God. Breathe out. I am his. One more time. God is God. I am his. Now listen to these words one more time from Jesus. With your eyes closed, come to me, you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light.
sit with your eyes closed. What we're going to do, I'm going to breathe the prayer again a couple more times. I'm going to read Jesus' invitation one more time. And this time, in the moments that follow, allow the thoughts and feelings you experience with Jesus' invitation, whatever they might be. Don't try to, to block them out with the centering prayer or distractions into something else. Let them come to you. Let them surface. Don't suppress them or move on from them. But also don't judge or jump to conclusions in them. Just notice them. Just notice them. Take note of them. There's actually little papers in front of you in those seats if you need to write them down. But just let these things come up, like Isaiah in the presence of the Lord. Some of them can be really affirming. They don't always have to be (laughs) condemning. But whatever comes, just let it come. Without judgment, without condemnation, without conclusion. So pray with me again. God is God, and I am his. God is God, and I am his. God is God, and I am his. Jesus said, come to me, you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Again, one last time with eyes closed. We're going to pray the centering prayer and read Jesus' invitation. And then in this stillness, in this couple minutes, the last couple minutes this morning of quiet, those things that came up, if you can, if you're able, speak them back to Jesus like Isaiah spoke back to God. Take them off and put on Jesus' words. Speak them back to Jesus. Take them off. 
and put on Jesus's words. Pray with me. God is God and I am his. God is God and I am his. God is God and I am his. Jesus says to you, come to me. You who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Jesus says to you, take my yoke and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for my souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Henry Nouwen said, um, commenting on solitude, that place that we've just been in, right? This moment of silence that we've, we've held, that we've just done a brief little sample of, right? 10, 12 minutes of quiet. He says, this place is the furnace of transformation. It's in the place of the greatest struggle and the great encounter. The struggle against compulsions of the false self, of things that are untrue, of things that are true only in their brokenness and not in their wholeness. But it's also an encounter with the love of God who offers himself as a substitute for the new self. Every time the followers of Jesus came together, they did this one thing. They took bread and they broke the bread apart. And in breaking the bread apart, they remembered that Jesus' body was broken for theirs. That their brokenness was healed through his brokenness, was mended by their brokenness. It was mended by his brokenness, sorry. And then he poured this 
wine. Ours is grape juice, but he poured this wine. And he said, this is my blood, the blood of a new covenant. The blood, my life, is a promise for your life. That you might have life and have life whole and new, born again. And so in the front of you, there's these little cups that are the communion cups. So if you'll grab those and open those up as we conclude our time of quiet and of focus, let's do so with giving words to the words of the Lord, the words of scripture. We stand with me and read these words together from Hebrews chapter 10. Therefore, read with me. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened to us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. In Jesus' name.